You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Galver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who has been covering the NBA for GQ and 538. Michael, since we last talked, quite a bit happened. Uh, the Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, after 13 years, decided to step down, uh, step away from that position, leaving the Rockets hanging, if you ask me. And then you've also got uh, the LA Clippers signing uh, Ty Lue officially as their new coach, to replace his longtime mentor, Doc Rivers. The Clippers will go forward, hoping that Ty Lue can do the same thing for the Clippers that he did for the Cleveland Cavaliers when they won the 2016 title. We'll see about that, Michael. We will see. Let's start with Daryl Morey, though, because I think this is a bigger deal, almost the biggest possible deal you can get in terms of an executive uh, stepping away from an organization at this point. There's a few mm-hmm. others that maybe have been in their spots longer But if we're looking at the most influential guys around the league over the last 10 or 15 years, doesn't that wind up being Daryl Morey's legacy, a guy who kind of changed the NBA more than almost any other executive out there? For sure. That's definitely one of them. I mean, he made eight straight playoffs, which is the longest streak in the league, which was in the press release on NBA.com, which I... I, like, didn't even believe that when I read it. Um, And it just kind of speaks to his consistency and well, b- you know even better stat he- for you michael because people didn't use this one enough <laughs> during his 13-year tenure the houston rockets won more regular season games than every team except for the san antonio spurs they were number two out of 30 that's pretty darn good that's incredible um i mean i feel i felt like throughout his entire tenure that he was unfairly criticized for for a lot of different reasons and the Houston Rockets at large were criticized for unfair reasons it's one of the reasons why I picked them to win it all three years in a row and obviously I was a fool for doing that but I mean if we're talking about his legacy like I I think it obviously starts with analytics and you know he was kind of a rule-bending uh, vanguard for the analytics era in a lot of the decisions that he made. And, you know, he either found CBA loopholes or or hired people hired people who could, like the, the Omer Ashik poison pill or Jeremy Lin's offer sheet, or uh, even most recently that Nene contract that didn't really work out in the league kind of didn't allow to, to happen, that he wanted to use it as a trade ship. Uh, but that was just another attempt for someone who just kind of always thought outside the box. Um, you know, I, I think primarily because he didn't ever make the finals, uh, I think his legacy in terms of just, you know, as a decision maker will be the, the James Harden trade and everything that happened afterwards with how they built around James and how they went, they were constantly star hunting, trying to find a piece to, to put around Harden and... Uh, you know, he was tasked with rebuilding on the fly because Leslie Alexander, the former Houston Rockets owner, didn't really like allow tanking, didn't want to lose, didn't want to drop below 500. That was never an option. So, you know, Maury, uh, you know, he went the other way and kept trading draft picks and trying to build and improve um, again on the fly, which is, 
incredibly difficult. And I think, you know, I, I personally applaud Maury for more recently, you know, how bold he was in going for it and trying to win the title when the Golden State Warriors, this unprecedented juggernaut, were at their peak and nearly toppling them. Uh, so, like, I just have so much respect for him, for everything he did for the game. Obviously, the three-point shooting and his impact there goes without saying. Uh, there are certainly some decisions that were made that you can criticize. Um, that, I, I mean, personally, I'm not even sure, like, the Russell Westbrook trade is probably the worst decision of his career, but how much of that was uh, up to him and how much of that was up to other people in the organization, we'll probably never know. No, that's the um, ultimate but, sign of respect, and that's his legacy. He was so good at his job that when he made a terrible trade, everyone just agreed that it wasn't his fault and that he never would have done it. It was obviously James Harden's fault yeah. or Tillman Fertitta's <laughs> fault. It's the ultimate escape clause. I would love to get there at some point in my career where if I do screw up, people are like, hey, man, look, we know that wasn't you. That was clearly someone else around you. Um, you know, you're, you're mentioning a lot of different things. When you say outside the box thinker, I don't want people to view Maury as, you know, someone like myself wandering around in the daffodils trying to take photos of butterflies. I mean, the thing about him, he was a very <laughs> unconventional thinker, but he, he was very rigid in terms of let's question whatever the conventional wisdom might be mm-hmm. about how this job is supposed to be done. Let's ask you know, is it being done correctly? Is this actually helping? Is this the way that it should be done? So you mentioned the contract structure stuff, of course, but there's also the style of play. Should we be shooting as many mid-range jumpers as we are? No, there should be more three-pointers. Should we be, uh, you know, fielding lineups with lots of big guys? Well, actually, small ball might be a little bit more efficient. Uh, you know, should we be in situations where our big guys are chasing smaller players all around the perimeter or should we get more versatile so we can switch everything on defense? There's a lot of things if you look at the last, you know, especially five years of basketball, modernizing of the game where the Rockets are just cutting edge and they're the ones pushing the envelope. And sometimes they're pushing that envelope too hard, right? But they're the ones up there on the front um, doing it. And that's a lot of the reason why they got criticism. You know, they weren't afraid to foul hunt. You know, there was never some edict from Daryl Morey where it's like, hey, James, the flopping stuff has gotten a little out of control. Can you just rein that back in? You know, it's bad for business. Instead, it was like, hey, man, the four-point play is the single most efficient thing you can do out there. Go out there and flop every single time. Kick those legs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So um, they were willing to play in the gray area for sure. Another thing that I think he did... You know, the executive position is a very discreet position, usually, and especially it was 10 years ago. You did not see guys out front. You did not see them talking out of turn um, very often. You know, usually it's just boilerplate statements and press releases. That's kind of how that job was done. Then you've got Daryl Morey on Twitter, you know, regularly talking to reporters, hyping up his players, interacting with people, uh, tweeting up a storm being more like an everyman. And I do think a lot of fans related to that. Now, unfortunately, that actually wound up contributing to his downfall because uh, the tweet about Hong Kong triggered an international incident that he never could have seen coming, right? But I think for a long time, having that GM as a public face, again, it went against conventional wisdom. It appealed to a lot of people and it put their organization um, just in a different light than it would have been had he not done that. I also think, uh, you know, he was particularly thirsty when it came to the free agents. He was just kind of, he was just honest about it. Like you're saying, hey, I need to go find a second star for James Harden. He knows that's his task. Everyone else around the league knows it's his task. So why is he going to try to pretend that he's 
hiding his cards and, you know, playing all discreet and, you know, just operating in the background. He's just upfront about it. Yeah, we want to go get Dwight Howard and we're going to line up Moses Malone and Akeem Olajuwon and all these other posters of these guys to try to go recruit them. Um, I think that has now become more of the norm as well. Just kind of the the, the shamelessness in, in terms of pursuing, um, you know, top free agents. And I think he, he pushed the envelope on, on that as well. So you go to a lot of different parts of the job. He really did shake things up. He was, you know, that, that lame phrase disruptor. He absolutely was that. And I think when you add it all up, Michael, when you add up the forward thinking stuff, uh, his obsession with trying to squeeze out more efficiency, when you add up his ability to make that hardened trade and other uh, subsequent, subsequent trades, when you talk about his successes in free agencies, when you talk about him pulling players like Patrick Beverly um, from nowhere, when you talk about even some of the draft successes like a Clint Capella or a Montrez Harrell, I mean, this was not a guy who you could easily write off as, oh, he's just an analytics dork. He's a very well-rounded executive who kind of nailed every aspect of the job. And that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you, which is if you put all of the, the GMs into a draft and you had a brand new expansion franchise in just sort of a random city, you know, not, uh, not a Los Angeles, not New York, where mm-hmm. are you drafting Maury? Like how many other executives are you taking before Maury? Because I do think his, his completeness of his skill set makes him a really attractive executive. I think he's got to be in the top five, right? Oh, for sure in the top five. I mean, I have a, a small list of guys who would be in this tier with him. Um, I think the one knock on him is, and maybe this is not even a knock anymore because he's just been around for so long, but I think earlier on in his career, I mean, so much of being a successful general manager or VP or, or whatever um, is relationships and knowing different guys around the league and not having adversarial relationships with other other GMs and owners and whoever because at the end of the day you are in competition with 29 others but 29 other teams but at the same time like you want to you want to be friendly enough to be able to get deals done and to have people respect you and have people be honest with you when they are speaking to you with regards to uh you know player personnel decisions and that things of that sort so I don't think that that's really a knock on him anymore. I think it was earlier on in his career when he would call and he would make absolutely absurd trade offers to people and they would just hang up the phone and be like, F this dude. Yeah. I don't think that that's the case anymore. Well, um, I think it's a good point. I think that he settled in and got his reputation built after a while and the early resentment that there was uh, towards all analytics has waned because pretty much every team out there has had to copy yes. what they did, right? So everyone sort of realized, hey, maybe we don't agree with his style and, and, and how he conducts himself, but you know, ultimately the conclusions and, and the basketball solutions that he's achieved, uh, those matter. And if we don't get on board, we're going to get left behind. And that took a while to play out for sure. And there was a lot of rocky moments for Maury along the way in terms of his reputation. But I do think that he convinced a large portion of the league or the league's owners anyways, and they were you know <laughs> making their own personnel adjustments to find uh, you know executives more capable of keeping up. Uh, and I think that process did play out. I think one important point on the um, communications aspect, remember, this is the era of superstars changing teams every couple years, right? Even mm-hmm. Popovich and R.C. Buford couldn't keep Kawhi Leonard happy, right? LeBron's left multiple times. Kevin Durant's left multiple times. Kyrie Irving's left multiple times. And there's a couple exceptions, you know, with Steph Curry here and there. 
But remember, James Harden never won a title uh, in Houston, but he's been there for eight years, and we have never heard rumors of him wanting out, right? No. And a big part of that job, at least not yet anyways, we'll see how the next couple of years go, but we never heard a peep about James Harden wanting out. And a huge part of the modern job is communicating with your superstar player, keeping him happy, catering to him, bending over backwards to him if you have to. And in that sense, again, Maury's just kind of being upfront about that aspect of the job and just, you know, doing it diligently. And even if that does mean a, a Russell Westbrook trade, uh, you know, you go out there and, and you get that done too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most important thing. He always understood that it was, you know, James Harden's team. And I think, uh, you know, again, that speaks to his communication ability. If he didn't have the ability to keep Harden happy, there's a lot of other teams that would have come calling along the way and they never did. So, um, you know, just one more tool in his toolbox. Give me your uh, give me your power rankings. So I want to know who are your top five uh, if you're doing the draft? Wow, this is a tough one. Um, I mean... Number one, I, you're gonna. Can you? I, you could probably guess my number one. It's Danny. I'm sure it's Danny. <laughs> I knew it's it would Danny. be. Come on. And yeah, I, I'm not even gonna Danny. clown you. Danny is in my top four. I'll tell you that. Yeah. No. Danny is a great general manager, and we go. But when we go back to talk about like relationships, he's connected to just everybody. Like he either hired you and gave you your first job, or like you owe him something at some point in your career, including Daryl. Um, yeah, that's the old Ryan so, McDonough, you know, trade me half your roster because you got the job in Phoenix move. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Uncle Danny came through with a few requests for uh, for young Ryan, didn't he? Um, exactly. No, he's either loved or hated, though. I mean, Danny's got his his fair share of uh, adversaries, too, wouldn't you say? Probably, yeah. I mean, if you just YouTube, like, Danny Ainge fights and <laughs> see some of the people who have tried to punch him in the face over the years when he was a player. Um, or, you yeah, know, the, some of those figures are still around. So, yeah, that doesn't really help him out too much. Yeah, Pat Riley press press releases. I would take Masai yes. over Danny. Is that controversial? or can Oh, you, wow. Yeah. I think Masai might be my number one overall pick right now, to be honest. Oh, wow. I mean, Messiah is obviously on my list for sure. Um, I only wrote down, let me see here. I wrote down six names. And I think for the purpose of this exercise, like some of these guys aren't technically GMs, but, you know, these are the final like decision makers for like the draft who are beneath the owner, I guess is what we're, what we're kind of doing here. Okay. You, um, you've teased us enough. Give us the list, Michael. Okay. <laughs> so I have, I have Danny number one. Uh, I think. I think Daryl is Daryl's probably my number two. Wow. To be honest, um, I mean, if we're just starting from scratch for this exercise, like I agree with so much of what Daryl's approach is with regards to team building, with regards to uh, like just a, a, a willingness to think outside the box in terms of team construction and. I think one of the things that we didn't touch upon earlier that as a point of criticism is just uh, chemistry and that whole unquantifiable vibe of getting guys who who get along on the court and who might fit a little bit better for different types of reasons. And that's been kind of a a point of contention, I feel like, for the people who do criticize Daryl. And over the years, I've kind of drifted a little bit away from that way of thinking and now i do think that the longer you can have con- con- uh, continuity the better um obviously you need talented players first and foremost but 
but yeah, so I, I you know, I am, I'm like crapping on that aspect of, of his tenure, but no, I, a, I just think it's like, a fair criticism. There was multiple times where he's asked point blank, like, Hey, do these stars even fit? Like, aren't you worried about the chemistry? And he'll always say like, I'll take talent and figure out the chemistry stuff later. It was just not a priority to him. And he also cycled his roster so fast. And it's another situation actually where he was a little bit cutting edge. If you go back even five years when there was longer contracts in the NBA, um, teams and, and owners and front offices were more willing to talk themselves into something maybe working out down the road. You know, oh, we just need a little bit more time to figure this out. Uh, with Daryl, it was more like, give me a sample size that's, you know, reasonable. And look, this just isn't working. And it would, then three guys would get traded or this superstar would have to go or we're turning over the whole roster or we're changing our style of play or whatever it might be. I mean, it wasn't impulsive decisions. It was just quick and, and strong and forceful decisions where you're you're blowing up things before a lot of other teams would have. And he did that over and over and over again. And so it did create a situation where um, the chemistry and the cohesion was absolutely their undoing in multiple seasons, including this one, by the way, right? If they have better chemistry, Daniel House doesn't feel the need to have a liaison because mm. he feels so much peer pressure around his from his teammates to, to not screw up and to, and to keep that playoff run going, right? So um, it's absolutely a fair criticism of him. But I think that uh, what his point is, is like, look, you can chase chemistry all day long. And then sometimes, you know, a player will need to opt out or get a new contract and he moves forward. You have that great chemistry. It's it's so um, difficult to bottle up and sustain, whereas talent will sustain winning for you for eight straight years, just like it did with James Harden. Right. I mean, playoffs every single year, playoff runs every single year. Yeah, I think he had a point. No, for sure. I I do think, though, like, if you put yourself in the shoes of a role player who is on, like, a tradable contract and you play for the Rockets, it's just a different type of day-to-day stress level, anxiety level than it would be on another team because of who the GM is and how the GM kind of conducts himself publicly when he's constantly talking about the need to get better players (laughs) and, and more stars. So... Like, from that perspective, I can understand why that would not be great for team chemistry in all cases. And, and I, know, I think someone would hear that statement and point back and, and, and punch back a little bit by saying, um, you know, these are professionals who get paid millions of dollars. And they need to be prepared. But these are all human beings at the end of the day. And so I think that that could be a slight deterrent um, for anyone who did not does not think that he is. Uh, I'm like putting just like bullets into my own case here, but I, I at the end of the day, I do have Daryl number two. And no, I, I, real quick, I, well, I, hold on, because I think that's an okay. important point. So there is kind of a cold and calculating approach to his GM, right? Like if you're the yes, eighth guy yes. on the roster and he can go out and, and improve on you, you know he's going to go make that that move, right? Um, but you also know where he stands, right? And so I think like the biggest knock on Danny of his entire last decade would be the whole like, oh, he was willing to trade Isaiah Thomas, you know, or like not pay him. It's so cold blooded. And, and people viewed that as like a backstabbing and that became a major narrative. I mean, Anthony Davis's dad got in on it. Everybody got in on it, right? You could never really criticize Daryl Morey as a backstabber because he's just a front stabber, right? He's just going to let you know where things stand, right? It, it's just all the cards are on the table. It's like, look, we're ruthless. We're trying to make our team better. And, uh, you know, we know our formula and we know if you fit with our formula. And by the way, if you're a role player who does fit with James Harden, 
then you're going to get paid for a while and we're going to take care of you. You're going to have great numbers and then you're going to probably become a free agent that other teams are going to look at. And in a lot of cases, they salvaged careers for players in those spots, right? Uh, the latest example would be a Ben McLemore, but there was a long list of guys who, sure. um, you know, once they did fit into that system, were able to, you know, have nice careers afterwards. So uh, I think everybody just sort of knew the deal down there, right? And, you know, building on that, like you have a player like Chandler Parsons who gets a max contract because he's in that system and he's playing for uh, uh, such an analytically friendly um, team. So like it, it kind of cuts both, way, both ways, I think. But um, I real, real, really quick wanted to just touch on like the 5% rule, which is something that I think, I think Daryl Morey coined that. The first time I read it was like eight years ago in a Zach Lowe column, an interview with Daryl, where he basically lays out that if you have a 5% chance of winning the championship, you need to do absolutely everything in your power to try to win the championship. And I personally love everything about that. And I, I think about that like, I don't even know, like once a week at least when I'm trying to analyze analyze NBA teams and what decisions they should make and and how they should be operating and functioning. Like, I love that if you, even if you only have 5% chance of winning at all, that you should go in, all in, do whatever it takes. Because at the end of the day, winning is what matters. And that's one of the number one things I really respect about Daryl. Like, even when Golden State was at the top, they get Kevin Durant, they look unbeatable. All these other teams are kind of like punting on the next couple seasons with their decisions. And Daryl's just like, no, I'm trading for Chris Paul. And uh, yeah, we're going for it right now. Like I loved, I loved everything about that. No, and it was at the right time too. That was the thing. It's because everybody else was was punting. You know, it was punter's paradise in 2016 and 17 when the Warriors looked completely unstoppable. <laughs> everybody wants to be Reggie Roby, and, and Daryl goes completely the other way. Um, okay, give me just list off the other names uh, on your top five. Like for me, I do have Danny. Um, I've got Sam mm-hmm. Presti. I, I think I mentioned mm-hmm. Masai is number one. Daryl, for mm-hmm. me, is no lower than four. I would really have to sit down between him, Danny, and, and Sam Presti and decide where I'd rank those guys. But for me, the big takeaway is he is clearly the best executive available on the market, right? And I think he will be no matter what, even if he sits out this entire upcoming season and tries to come back the following year. Um, you know, yes. some people might try to compare it like to a Sam Hinkie. I mean, remember, a lot of the things that we're saying about Daryl – Sam never proved. Sam never had a, uh, a functional relationship with the media. He struggled with the communication aspect. He struggled with the culture building. He struggled with uh, you know some of the buy-in with the superstar level players and steering their careers properly. Like he knew how to do the asset um, accumulation, right? He knew how to to do the trades. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of aspects of of Daryl's uh, portfolio in terms of skills that Sam did have. But Daryl also had a lot of other stuff proven that Sam never did, right? So uh, to me, he's like kind of on a tier by himself. Guys as good as Daryl don't come along very often. And so if I'm an owner right now, I am looking real hard at my GM spot. And I'm saying, look, I could get this guy for the next 10 years. We could be one of the most winningest franchises, just like he did down in Houston. Uh, I need to think about how much do I really, really like my current front office setup and am I willing mm-hmm. to kind of go for it? And I do think there's a lot of GMs who, whose jobs are going to be not on the line, but they're going to be evaluated this coming season because uh, Daryl's out there looming. We'll see if he even wants to come back and continue to his NBA career. He's obviously going to have some other things he could pursue, but I trust that he's competitive enough that he won't uh, throw in the towel quite yet. Um, who else was on your short list? Anybody I didn't mention? Yeah, I have three names, um, and I agree with all. I had all the guys that you 
you you mentioned on my list as well. Um, I'm I'm gonna give some love to Bob Myers. Um, you know, I feel like just from the perspective of of uh, egolessness and selflessness and not willing to kind of put yourself on every single story and every single narrative and take credit for every decision and every draft pick. I think that that was that is one of the most valuable things that a GM can be and 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 one of the most valuable attributes that a GM can have in today's NBA and Bob Myers is probably number 1 at that. So I so Bob Myers um yeah, for sure. Um Pat Riley is on my list also. I mean I think that that goes without saying. Are we? Or is he like? Would he qualify as quote unquote general manager for you? Yeah. Or just what do you think about that? Well, for sure on that one, that's where it went back to the idea of like an expansion franchise in a random market. Because for some of these guys like Bob Myers and and Pat Riley, it's tricky because like we only really know how they perform in the prestige market, right? Um, uh-huh. Where they're like that destination. Whereas I do think somebody like a, a Sam Presti or a Daryl, I really do think if you put them on the Charlotte Hornets, they could turn that franchise around. It would not take long, right? Now, are they going to be a title team? Probably not. But, you know, to me, that's sort of, you know, it, we call it the vacuum test when I do the top 100. You know, which player, if you just put them with a random group of teammates in a random situation, is going to have the most value, um, you know, and and show through as like kind of the, the biggest impact. And I that's why I feel like these guys... Uh, I mean, Houston's a, a big market for sure, but their 10 mm-hmm. previous years to Daryl showing up there were only good, not great. I think they averaged like 46 wins a season, um, you know, something along the, you know, th- that run. And with Oklahoma City, it's a brand new franchise dropped in, you know, maybe the least desirable market in the entire league. And look what Sam did for the the ensuing 10 years, right? So um, that's where I'm not necessarily taking points off of a Bob Myers or a Pat Riley, but I can pretty definitively say, hey, these guys have already shown that they could do it. I mean, it's a lot easier to pitch Jimmy Butler on heat culture when you've got Biscayne Bay in the background, right? Um, maybe <laughs> maybe a little bit more difficult if you're in the the Great Plains of the Midwest. No, that's entirely fair. And then I think then my last name here would be very similar to that sort of criticism that you just had. Uh, Donnie Nelson, I think one of the most underrated general managers in the league um, and just a really brilliant scout. Uh, that would be my other guy, but I would put him behind Daryl. Great, sure. great call. And I would too. He definitely deserves to be in this mix. But again, if you just go back to track records, like there was a lot of down years there for them in between, um, you know, Dirk, yep. Dirk's title and the Luca Renaissance. And that's one of the most amazing things about the Rockets is there was never a down year. You know, they were always in the playoffs and often winning playoff series. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? 
From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Okay, so now that we've established that Daryl Morey is in this top elite group, and I've kind of hinted that a bunch of GMs, you know, might be looking over their shoulders this upcoming season because he's looming there as this, like, you know, huge fish on the market. Do you have a dream destination for him to land? Like, what is his next organization? Because I've got one in mind, and it's a little diabolical, but I'm curious what you've got. I I'm kind of upset because you just named the franchise that I had here for this exercise. Um, and it's a pretty weird one, but I'm going with the Charlotte Hornets. Wow. Uh, and I, <laughs> wait, so MJ finds Moneyball religion and, and takes it to a title. Is that what we're going to get? Yeah, exactly. I, I just think like, I would love to see Daryl end up somewhere really weird and somewhere that's somewhere that's boring. Um, no offense to Charlotte, but like they're very boring. They're listless. Um, they don't really have much of an identity except for being cheap and not being good and being really boring to watch on, on League Pass. So if I could get Daryl Morey there, I would just be so fascinated to see how he turns that organization around and how he gets them to be more competent and the types of players that he attracts and which stars he's able to land and how he gets free agents to sign there and how he leverages Michael Jordan's aura. Like, I just think that that would be an awesome, awesome place for him. Well, I I think that you're going to like my idea because it's sort of similar in that I do want to see Daryl Morey have like the clearest possible impact, right? Because what you're describing Mm -hmm. is like, hey, Daryl's almost like the front office Kemba where he's going to reinvigorate the Charlotte Hornets. That's sort of your (laughs) idea here. What I want him to do is to basically turn into the face of the evil empire, right? I want him to lean all the way into all of these tricks and you know all the negativity that people come up with. And I want him to be backed by the richest owner in professional sports, Steve Ballmer, and I want him to take over an LA Clippers organization, which has already been established as sort of like, you know, uh, the, the franchise nobody really wants to root for. The Lakers are coming off the title, and I think Daryl Morey steps in with the Darth Vader suit and tries to, you know, <laughs> not worry about chemistry and just accumulate talent and take Kawhi Leonard and Paul George over the hump with unlimited resources. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Daryl Morey leading the Clippers? It feels perfect, Michael. That's actually really brilliant. And I, I I'm you've convinced me. I'm switching my answer. <laughs> I feel like an idiot for choosing Charlotte. Uh, obviously, it would be way more cool if Daryl was with the Clippers and he had all these resources and he had L.A. as the backdrop. And like, can you imagine just like the? Uh, Montrez Harrell leaking to uh, the athletic that he's upset about chemistry and all that, and just like, like Daryl's response. Oh man, yeah, actually, this is this is uh, this is prime A right here. It, I love it. It needs to happen, and I'm I'm getting in early. I'm writing it down now. This is no disrespect to their current front office, which is good. The nice thing about Bomber 
he doesn't have to fire anybody. He could just add another executive to his, you know, 14-person staff. It'll work out great. Come up with a new title for Daryl, you know, executive vice president of basketball moves, whatever you want to call it. I want to see it. I, I That would be so unreal. It would be the greatest, you know, like arms race ramp up between the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, it would just be phenomenal. Can you imagine like two different... Uh, you know, executives, Rob Polinka and, uh, you know, Daryl Morey from like central casting. They're just like perfect opposites. It would be so phenomenal. I'm going to ask you two real quick hitting questions. All right. Um, to, to wrap mm-hmm. up this Rockets conversation, we're talking about Daryl's future and, and where he goes from here. Where do James Harden and Russell Westbrook go from here? Because I think in my opinion, Tillman Fertitta doesn't even really know yet what he's lost. I think he's in it for a really rude awakening. If I look ahead to Houston season that's coming up, I am not convinced that they're going to be a playoff team. Now it's possible they do. It's maybe even more, a slightly more likely that they do. I think there's a really good chance they miss the playoffs this coming year, in part because of the West strength, in part because of my respect for what both Daryl Morey and uh, Mike D'Antoni brought to the mix, and in part because they just have very limited avenues to improve their roster and their roster needed some pretty serious work so if you're telling me that Westbrook misses a month because of an injury or maybe Harden misses two weeks because of an ankle sprain I could see this being a nine seed and so you know to me I I think it's just it becomes a situation for the stars where like there could be greener grass out there Harden's been very very comfortable in Houston but he's been comfortable because he's at a GM who would do literally everything for him right um, and now he's in a situation where maybe he's not going to be competing for titles like he did in previous years. And with Westbrook, we already know the deal there. He's going to be a trade asset for the rest of his career, given the size of the contract and given where his game is at right now. So if you had to guess, uh, you know, looking forward, how long is James Harden in Houston? How long is Russell Westbrook in Houston? And of course, keep in mind Tillman Fertitta's financial woes. I mean, we, we are... <laughs> Fully aware because he's let us know that he's been taking out high interest loans and, and begging for money um, from pe- President Trump in Washington over the summer and everything else. So that that's clearly a factor we cannot avoid. Um, what's your guess on how long the stars stay there? I think it's a coin flip that both or even one is there after the trade deadline, to be honest, because I agree with everything that you're saying about how they could easily miss the playoffs. I mean, wait, so like, b- breaking news, the Rockets will not be your title <laughs> pick this year, Michael. I'm going to wait until after the offseason and see, you know, what moves are made, uh, you know, if any trades, if they add a big man who makes sense, you know, I got to, you know, I got to I'm, I'm I don't want to be tied down right now, but I will say at this point it's a coin flip. And I look at just we were talking about chemistry before, like PJ Tucker wants an extension. If he heads into training camp with no even like negotiation had and no indication that he's going to be there long term, like he's going to be disgruntled. And so he's an absolute key part of everything that they want to do. Um, I think, again, the roster, are they are they believers in small ball and can they even function without Dan Tony, who's no longer even there and who's going to be the head coach and all these different questions. So. I'm putting it as a coin flip. I, I I think Russell Westbrook is obviously more likely to go, and they should be making calls around the league right now trying to get off of that contract. Um, but honestly, if the right package came along for Harden too, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I think that basically, you know, starting next season, not this upcoming season, but the following season, I would be surprised if 
if either are still in Houston. I think there's basically 12 months and both those two guys are gone. And congratulations, um, because that's like the worst possible thing you could say about an owner who inherited a team that was a steady winner is that you'll be <laughs> entering probably a five or six year rebuilding cycle. But I think that's sort of what's to come uh, for the Houston Rockets. Uh, what about in terms of percentage to make the playoffs this season? I think I'm right around 50-50, maybe 40-60 that they make the playoffs. I don't know. I, I, I change on this one a little bit every day. And of course, we don't know. As you're mentioning, we need to see how free agency plays out. And we need to see who they hire as a coach and everything else. But what percentage chance right now today do you give Houston to make the playoffs? I'm 50-50. Wow. Um, wow. Michael, they even lost Michael Pina. That's how bad this summer has gone for Tillman. I do want to just yeah. point out as my final thought here on Daryl, it was a rough final ending. And it's kind of amazing how it mirrored some of Houston's flameouts in previous years where they're always going to be remembered for the, the ugly ends of their playoffs and not necessarily for the consistent success they had to get there. But you look at Daryl's 13-year run. I mean, the final year, it has the Westbrook trade, which was the worst move of his tenure, as you've described. It had the tweet about Hong Kong, which cost the NBA hundreds of millions of dollars, and he never could have seen that coming. But it wound up making him a villain for a while, both internationally and, uh, you know, also among some of his NBA peers. And then you've got uh, the bubble run and, and remaking the roster around Westbrook and that just kind of blowing up in his face with Westbrook, uh, you know, not performing very well in the playoffs due to injuries, Chris Paul playing quite well all season long, and then the Daniel House situation. I mean, that last year was, you know, it wasn't a flame out, but it was definitely like not his typical year. And I don't want people mm -hmm. to remember Maury just for the kind of disappointing and uh, fireworks ending. I think it's important to keep in mind, just like it is with the Houston Rockets themselves, don't just focus on how they lose in the playoffs because that's easy, uh, low-hanging fruit. Look at the entire body of work. And when you think like... You know, they were top two in regular season wins during his tenure, and they were, I believe, like top seven or eight in playoff wins during his tenure. The results speak for themselves. That's really what matters. It would have been amazing if all these guys could have had a hero's moment. They never got it. Um, they understood that they were the villains for a lot of it, and they just kept plugging away. And I, I respect, uh, you know, everything about uh, what they did. And I do expect him to be back. He's so competitive. He needs that ring. He needs the validation for analytics. He's not going to be able to stay away. At least that's what I'm telling myself right now. Okay, Michael, let's shift gears to Ty Lue and the Clippers because uh, that was the other, you know, fairly big headline that came out. I mean, the Clippers to me was the most attractive job on the market. And there's a lot of jobs available, um, largely because of the talent on hand and because of Steve Ballmer's pocketbook. Um, Ty Lue, who was an assistant for Doc Rivers, winds up getting the head job. He flirted a little bit with Houston, and his name was linked to some other jobs out there. Um, I'm curious, did this feel like a natural match to you? I guess just like kind of my my snap take was, well, you had the best available candidate with Ty Lue because he's won a title, and he's young, he's energetic, people like him. And then you also had, on the other hand, the best available job, as I just described. I mean, was it just sort of like a, a natural matchmaker situation, or did you read it differently? I, I don't know. I, you know, uh, I think Ty Lue is a fine coach. I don't know necessarily that he is the absolute clear-cut best uh, head coach available here. Um, like, you know, they just let go of Doc Rivers. Is Ty Lue better than Doc Rivers? I, I, that's a, you know, I don't think so. Um, but from what was available, maybe, I mean, I think that 
Kawhi Leonard and to a lesser extent, Paul George would have likely had significant input on this, particularly Kawhi. Um, and if Kawhi wasn't down with Ty Lue or Kawhi wasn't down with whoever they hired, then they wouldn't have hired them. So I guess at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. But sometimes I think about Ty Lue and, you know, the fact that the Cleveland Cavaliers defense went from 10th to 21st to 29th. And if Draymond never punched LeBron, like that he's not the champion. He doesn't have the ring. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth here. I wonder about, you know, if there were chemistry issues and he was on the sidelines this whole time last season, like, I don't understand how that's going to just all of a sudden change with him being the head coach. Um, I don't know. What do you think about this? Well, I think on the doc part, I would, you know, again, if you're going in a vacuum, I would rather have doc than Ty because he's more experienced. I think he's the best communicator, kind of front-facing communicator in the league. But I do think that there was some kind of built-up animosity, uh, you know, over the years. And I think you can make an argument that it was time for a change for the Clippers. And I think that Ty brings some of the best parts of Doc because he's been mentored and kind of groomed by him over the years without as much, uh, without the baggage, really, you know? I, I do think that, you know, Doc is a huge figure within the NBA. He ta- he can't help himself. He loves to talk. There's no way he could ever scale back being Doc. In a way, Doc reminds me a little bit of Magic. You know, everybody loves to kind of make fun of Magic, but Magic is who he is. Doc is who he is. Those guys are not going to change <laughs> for anybody, and they've uh-huh. earned the right to do that, you know? And I think the Clippers just maybe needed a slightly different approach. I think that, um, you know, with Ty Lue, he gets a lot of credit for the in-game stuff too, and I, I think that is important for the Clippers. Um, there were times during the playoff run where they needed to make different substitutions, different adjustments, and the series just kind of got away from them. Do they blow the 3-1 lead if ties their coach? Tough to say because a lot of it was just that team rolling over, um, but I also think there's a, a case to be made that he would have just pushed different buttons and um, and they would have come out of that series okay against Denver. So uh, I think it's a, a good move. I have no real problem with it. Now, is he going to be a savior? Is he going to be able to duplicate what happened in 2016? I'm not ready to go that far because there is a difference between 2016 LeBron and 2020 or, or 2021 Kawhi Leonard, right? Kawhi Leonard is a phenomenal player, but he's not the same type of leadership personality. He is not the same type of communicator with his coach that LeBron was. That wound up being a pretty collaborative relationship between LeBron and Ty Lue. Mm-hmm. And they were definitely you know, seeing eye to eye. It's very difficult to me who actually gets to see eye to eye with Kawhi. I would like to know who, the, who that list of people is, right? Um, because it, clearly it wasn't Pop by the end of it. It wasn't R.C. Buford by the end of it. Uh, the Raptors did everything. Can I, can I answer your question? Yeah, please. Nick Nurse, baby. Steve Ballmer, open that checkbook up. Buy out Nick Nurse's contract with the Toronto Raptors. Let's get him to the Clippers. Come on. Yeah, well, I think the the window for that uh, passed. But again, like... If he really loved Nick Nurse that much, does he rush at the first opportunity to leave, right? And and especially a team that could win a title. And same deal with Masai. Is there a better communicator or figure in the NBA? Everybody universally loves and respects Masai, except apparently Kawhi Leonard, who just just flew on the private jet straight out of there, right? So that's a difficult challenge. And that is going to determine how successful Ty Lue is here. I think it's actually easier 
uh, to coach LeBron with all the challenges than it is to coach Kawhi. Now, it doesn't mean he's uncoachable. I'm not saying anything like that. Oh. I just think it's easier because you know where LeBron stands. You know exactly what he wants. He has strong feelings. He will let them know. Um, he will, you know, certainly tell you, I want to play with these guys or not these guys. Here's a style of play. I want to have the ball in my hand, X, Y, and Z. I just don't think it's the same deal with Kawhi. And you can count on LeBron every night from a health perspective, and you're not managing minutes. Uh, I think that's a, another aspect to this where the Clippers were trying to work in the load management thing, and it, I'm not sure everybody was completely on board with how that went, and it did create some complications for them over the course of the season. And then into the playoffs, it didn't really work. I mean, the, the, their team was not fresh. Their approach to minutes did not pan out uh, in the way they expected once it came to the uh, the bubble playoffs. So I think those are challenges that Ty Lue did not have to face in Cleveland that he does have mm-hmm. to face now. It doesn't mean he can't get over them. He's got a lot of talent, um, and they're going to be in the title mix for sure. I just don't think it's a perfect comparison or a clean comparison necessarily. No, that's all fair. Um, I just don't know how Ty Lue improves on the situation, and maybe, maybe it'll, it's just – like the fact that they're not going to be in the bubble next year and they'll be a year together or a year removed from that first season of kind of a lot of the pieces being disgruntled and maybe Montrezl Harrell isn't there in the locker room anymore and who knows um I could also see just a little bit of a uh, a reduction of expectations you know like Doc went up on the stage uh, at the the preseason press conference with Kawhi and Paul George and was like we want to be the team that wins it all right and you know obviously by the end of the season, how well did they manage those championship or bust expectations? Well, Paul George ran away from them, right? Like he didn't, he was like, what do you mean? We weren't trying to win a championship. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, so I just think that, you know, with someone like Ty Lue, he's just not going to play that media game as much, right? You know, they're going to be a little bit more focused, a little bit more buttoned up, a little quieter. And look, they're chastened after this season. I mean, that was a completely humiliating ending to their playoffs, right? And so I do think it would be better to not run back out this idea of like, yeah, we're going to win the title on day one, which I think that, you know, for a competitor like Doc, I'm not sure he would have been able to help himself. Mm. And I'm not sure that that wound up really motivating their team. I think that they're better off, you know, keeping their heads down, doing a lot less barking and more biting, you know? That was kind of the deal during the playoffs too. Paul George talking, Patrick Beverly talking, Montrez Harrell talking, and nobody underdogs. Yeah, nobody really backing it up. Yeah, get back into your underdog spirit. Look, the Lakers are the are the, the champions. You want to knock them off and, you know, give all your lip service respect to the Lakers before every game and then go out there and try to beat them. I think that's kind of the approach, and I can see Ty Lue doing that. Um, now, you mentioned Nick Nurse uh, as kind of your pipe dream hope. You know, <laughs> yeah. Did you have anybody else, like in terms of the guys who were on the market uh, or who were mm-hmm. available, that you would have liked more than Ty Lue? Because I was, I was doing this exercise, and as much as I would just love Jeff Van Gundy in the NBA, and maybe as a coach, I think he would just uh-huh. be wild. I don't know if he was the right fit like for a team like the Clippers, so I can't really say him. And then of the other candidates who were available, I think that you've got a case that Ty Lue is as attractive or better than any of them. Yeah, I think the Jeff Van Gundy question is super interesting, um, and we could go on about that for hours. Um, but the the name that I have is a little – maybe it's a little boring. Maybe it's a little stale. Um, not super original, but Mike D'Antoni. And I go there because I selfishly want to see him – you know, we were talking about like – Daryl validating himself and validating the analytics era and that belief and that that system and 
all of that, like, it would be awesome to see Mike D'Antoni win the championship before he retires. I just really want to see it from everything that he's gone through and how uh, revolutionary and influential he's been on the NBA. Uh, to see him uh, all of a sudden, like, after coaching the Rockets for the last few years where mid-range jumpers are just basically disallowed unless you're uh, on a max contract, like what he would say to uh, uh, like Kawhi, who's just like feasting on the mid-range more than any other player in the league. Like I would just, I would love to see it. I would love to see like how fast they played. Um, I think that Mike D'Antoni has the right temperament to coach superstars in the NBA and he's really good speaking with the media. So you're not really getting a drop off from from that perspective um and as someone who really responds to pressure well i feel like mike d'antonio would be good so i i don't know like is that is that like a really boring answer or is that or did you have like a different more exciting one to kind of throw out there uh no i i laid out kind of you know jeff van gunny to me would have been the funny like you know just <laughs> just curveball um uh, isn't it kind of hard to see D'Antoni working with Kawhi. I mean, this goes back to like my kind of questions about Kawhi and, and coachability and all that. How does that really work out? Like you've got the most affable coach and the quietest superstar. I feel like those those meetings are just strange. Like D'Antoni is going into his whole shtick about, hey man, we're just going to put the ball in your hands to trust you. And Kawhi's like, cool, bro. Cool. Uh, I got some new new yeah, balances. Bang. You just That's exactly how it's going to go. Boom. I mean, I feel like if you can get along with Harden as well as D'Antoni did, like it's not that much harder to get along with Kawhi, right? I don't know, man. Uh, we'll see. A lot of questions <laughs> on Kawhi's plate heading into this season. I'll say that. Hey, I wanted to close up uh, this episode with just a couple follow-ups uh, from the bubble experience. Uh, Marco wrote in. He said, I got some easy questions and you've had some time to reflect. What was your favorite playoff series from the bubble? And he goes on to say there were so many great ones to choose from. Toronto Raptors versus Boston Celtics, uh, Denver Nuggets versus Los Angeles Clippers, Utah versus Denver. I'm having a difficult time choosing, so I'm curious what you guys are picking as your favorite. And he says, and just for fun, who is your favorite player from the bubble? Not the best player, but your personal favorite. Could it be Jimmy Butler because he finally reached the finals, Donovan Mitchell or Jamal Murray uh, because of their amazing performances? Could it be Paul George? Just kidding. Anthony Davis, who you got? So Marco's uh, opening us up just to have some positive reflections. I think it's always nice, Michael, to, to look back fondly when we can. Um, and the bubble already feels like a year ago, to be honest. It's only been like a week since I've been free, but uh, it feels like deep in my rear view. But he got me going down memory lane. So I'm curious, what was your favorite series and who was your favorite player? I think my favorite series, this was kind of an easy one, actually, and Marco kind of nailed it, uh, Raptor-Celtics. Uh, I just thought that, that me was a too, cl- me too. Me too. We're on the same was, page. Yeah. I mean, it was a classic. It was only the second round, but it probably should have been the conference finals for years. Uh, you know, this, this was the first time that these two franchises ever faced off in the playoffs, despite being really competitive for the past, like, five, four or five years. Um And it just had moments, man. Like, OG's shot was probably the most incredible shot in the entire bubble. If, you know, you could say AD's buzzer beater, but I thought OG's 0.5 seconds, like that cross court inbounds pass. Like, it's just, 
you know, down two zero. That was an incredible, incredible shot. Um, best Jaylen moment. Had some best play of the bubble. Best moment of the bubble. I would say was that shot. And yeah. then right yeah. up there was Kyle Lowry needing stitches later in the series, and then during his post game press conference, <laughs> showing us pictures of his cut, his wound on his cell phone during the press conference, and allowing us to take pictures of his cell phone of the wound. Another just very memorable bubble experience. Also, I think that that series elicited at least 100 profanities from Lowry over the course of his like seven post-game interviews. Always uh, fun when guys it was a battle. get into yeah. that a little bit. Um, I'll also always remember Nick Nurse. Like He was so wound up by that series that his post-game press conferences, it seemed like he was going into deep breathing and meditation exercises to wind down. <laughs> and he was like, actually, like I'm not joking, by the way. He was letting like players do their post-games first, and he would come in. And it seemed like he was trying to like get control of his heart rate during the, the press conferences in between questions. I mean, it was that level of intense. And again, just the bubble brought out the diehard competitors, you know, and just like basketball nuts like Nick Nurse in an empty arena with no fans, so wound up by some late game calls that he has to like, you know, de- do deep breathing before he can talk to the media half an hour after the game ended. Mm-hmm. That's what the NBA is all about, right? I mean, this is, this is competitive uh, juices, you know, uh, flowing at their finest and um you know it it does pay me to say like boston you know they did win that series and yet i'm still picking it as my favorite series yeah i mean it had nick nurse standing in the corner jason tatum throwing him that pass um it had a a box and one basically from the jump on kemba walker uh marcus smart's block in game seven on norm powell norm powell going off in game six uh, Lowry doing so many different Kyle Lowry things. Uh, Pascal Siakam really not stepping up in the spotlight. I just thought there was so much drama throughout that series. Uh, it was really unforgettable. It's a great one. I would. He also mentioned um, Denver, Utah, just in terms of like sheer scoring heroics. Yeah. That one's got to be in there. Um, underrated first round series, I thought, was Houston, Oklahoma City. He did not mention that oh, yeah. one. That one goes seven. You get the block at the very end. Game seven's wild. Everyone's expecting Houston to crumble. They don't crumble. Well, they did crumble, but later, you know, in the second round. Um, just a lot of crazy narratives going on. Chris Paul pouring it all out there with some, you know, epic performances. Let's not forget Dort. I mean, the Dort era was just a phenomenal era of the bubble, you know, that, that solid two weeks where he's just locking up Harden. Um, all in all, great series. I think those are the best ones, though. I, I think he pretty much had it with his short list. Who was your favorite player of the bubble? And if you say that choker, Jason Tatum, down the stretch, don't say it. Don't do it. Oh, my God. Uh, no, I was actually going to say <laughs> Dort. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think... Valid answer, I think my, honestly. Dort was one of the bubble... I mean... Dort's a star. Yeah. I, I was thinking about doing, like, a top 10 bubble boys, you know, like, who really, like, came forward as, like, an essence mm-hmm. of the bubble. To me, Jamal Murray was the bubble boy. Like, he, mm-hmm. he just... Everything that the bubble represented... He leaned into it. His breakthrough was kind of like that, probably the biggest storyline in terms of young players, um, you know, taking the next step. He carried a team to the Western Conference Finals that we didn't really expect. It was just night after night of the consistency factor. It was fun. It was electric. I mean, it was also very emotional with some of his post-game speeches where he's breaking down in tears and all that stuff. So I felt like he symbolized the bubble better than everybody. I mean, Dort's breakthrough... Tyler Hero's uh, breakout performance in the Eastern Conference Finals. There was a couple other bubble performances like that. But was that enough to get your overall favorite bubble player, or who was it? No, actually, mine, I wrote down Jamal Murray. 
um, for a lot of the same reasons that you outlined. And I'm just always fascinated anytime someone makes a leap. And the way he made a leap was like to Steph Curry 2015 levels. And every time he shot a basketball, I expected it to go in. His layups were majestic. And I can't wait to see if he's able to kind of sustain or even build upon what he did in the bubble and whether or not it was just kind of like, you know, him benefiting from no fans being there or or no travel or whatever it was. Um, But if he's able to be this guy consistently from this point forward, then it just kind of changes like everything in the Western Conference. So uh, shout out to Jamal Murray. The guy I went with was Luka Doncic. Um, Look, he wasn't around for quite as long as some of these other guys. I will always wonder what happened if he caught the Clippers a little bit later, right? Because eventually the Clippers decided they didn't want to be in the bubble, you know? And it was just like two weeks after Luka's crazy explosions. Like if, if they had found a way to manipulate the matchups and get the Clippers in the second round, could Dallas win that series? I think it's possible. I'm, there's always a what if with Porzingis's injury. In hindsight, you wonder, well, the Clippers didn't look that vulnerable in the first round by the end of it. But maybe if Dallas is at full strength for the whole thing, um, he doesn't get ejected and all that kind of stuff. Okay, maybe they have a better shot. Um, Luca was just absolutely insane. You know, I mean, I think in, in terms of the most impressive players from the bubble, I mean, obviously we're going to backweight that and say guys like LeBron, Anthony Davis, you know, Jimmy Butler, who the emailer mentioned, and a few others. Uh, you know, even Tatum had a really nice run through the entire playoffs. But, Thank you. But Luca for that first round series. I mean, it, it definitely felt like just kind of uh, you know an introduction to true greatness. You're sitting there watching, especially the the three point mm-hmm. shot that he hits to win it. But it was just play after play after play of like LeBron like orchestration, where he's in total control. He's completely confident. He's getting every shot that he wants. The offense is clicking. The team is rallying around him. He's coming into his own. He's no longer that second year player, you know, he looks like an established, like late twenties, superstar level guy. And the whole time you're just thinking like, what is this guy going to look like once, once he actually grows up a little bit, once he's, you know, in his mid twenties, you're starting to think this guy could be the MVP next season, right? This guy could lead a title team two or three years. It's not that far away. Um, It just felt like, you know, he was, you know, he smashed through a whole bunch of tiers. And, and look, he had done that, most of that anyways, during the regular season. And he was an MVP candidate this season for sure. But I thought even in this stage where you're getting to compare guys night after night, just see them, you know, who has the biggest impact and you're just watching game after game after game after game. I thought Luca was really, really, really high on that list. And of all the the roster building challenges here kind of going forward, um, you know, I feel like Dallas is like in the most interesting spot because it really does feel like they're right where Houston was you know, a year after landing Harden. So how do they do it? Can they convince superstar level guys to come play with Luka? Can they swing a big trade for a third star by putting together a bunch of assets? Like that's one team I've got absolutely circled. Not only this off season, which is going to be kind of a weird off season, of course, but like the next two or three summers, because I feel like they should be in the mix for absolutely everybody. If I'm a star who's disgruntled thinking about a trade or whatever else, I'm thinking long and hard about getting myself on Luka's team. Giannis. Giannis and Luca in Dallas. Let's go. You know, before you uh, complimented uh, Tatum, I was going to say, could you imagine what Tatum would have done in that role in Dallas and just how he would have sliced and diced through the Los (laughs) Angeles Clippers? But I I, I had to save myself because you did throw Tatum a bone, so I appreciate it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got some stuff to prove next year, too. I'm actually really looking forward to the next chapter of, of Jason Tatum's career this coming season. Because the more I'm thinking about it, do they enter next year as the favorites to win the East? Um, you know, with some skepticism about Milwaukee and are they going to be versatile enough in the playoffs? With Miami, you know, people having some fair doubts about, okay, like, did they max out this past year with Toronto probably losing some pieces? I almost feel like by process of elimination, the Boston Celtics are going to have to wear that crown a little bit. They're going to be able to bring all the important guys back. They've got one more year of experience and growth. They've got a, a guy in Tatum, you know, top three player in the conference. What's stopping them from being the early favorites next year for the East? I mean, we, we we talked about the uh, the need for underdog mentality with the Clippers. We're going to keep that to the Celtics right oh, now as well. Oh, you don't uh, want the so... pressure. Okay, running from the pressure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's where we're at, I think, in Boston right now. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I understand that. Uh, you got burned yeah. this year in the playoffs, so that I, mm-hmm. I could understand why you wouldn't want to, mm-hmm. to have that happen again. All right, we're going to close on a fun note here from Matteo in Italy. He writes... I felt called upon when you guys were asking for a scientist to define the relationship between LeBron James and Anthony Davis on a recent podcast. I am a biologist, and I believe the word you were looking for was symbiosis. You'll remember, Michael, I was talking about how they made each other better in kind of a mutual fashion, but I couldn't put my finger on the word. Of course, the word was symbiosis, and many of our listeners let us know that. Matteo writes, living off the scraps and byproducts of each other, increasing each other's chances for survival. Now... If you wanted to define the Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant relationship instead, that would be parasitism. The byproducts of one species may benefit the other, but definitely not vice versa. In fact, the giver may not even realize he's been parasited, or worse, it could be detrimental. So I think in this case, Kevin Durant doesn't really realize what's happening. I think that's uh, an interesting comparison from our scientist buddy Matteo in Italy. Marcus in Toronto writes, with the same thought. So who is this NBA version of a parasitic relationship? What about Russell Westbrook and James Harden? Harden is hurt by Russell and his inability to make good decisions in the clutch, but Russ looks better with a space floor and no centers. Can you think of any other examples of NBA symbiosis and parasitic relationships? Well, this is uh, incredibly dorky, but also very on brand for us to close this up. Uh, Michael, I, I do want to point out the very first time I used this idea of a symbiotic relationship was for Steph Curry and Draymond Green, right? Because like without Draymond's defense and without his ability to be a kind of a, yeah. a versatile playmaker, Steph Curry doesn't quite get as, as many open opportunities as he does. Uh, they just kind of perfectly cover for each other's weaknesses and also accentuate each other's strengths. The Kyrie and Kevin Durant one is very, very compelling for Matteo. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to beat that. What did you make of um, you know our scientists weighing in here, Michael? And did you have any other examples that you want to throw out there? I mean, this is this is great. I mean, I actually wrote down for the symbiotic relationship. I think Steph and Draymond are just too perfect in so many different ways. The offense defense combination. Um, well, what I about mean, what about your Boston Celtics wings? Are they in that category? They. That's an interesting one for sure. I feel like they like complement everybody else in a little bit, especially on the defensive end, where they're just able to guard whoever. And then, you know, offensively, Jalen isn't really much of a playmaker. Tatum is still kind of growing as a playmaker a little bit, so he can take some of that responsibility off. I'm not sure if they're at that level yet, just like quite, yeah, at the level that they need to be quite yet in terms of this conversation. Um, What about Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton? 
I know those are like your two favorite players in the league. Like I, I'm just like throwing you a snack right now. Well, make the case. So are, are, you're you're expecting a lot from DeAndre on the defensive end if you're making that case. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that DeAndre Ayton is going to be an excellent defensive player. He showed some major strides as the regular season went on before the the season was suspended. Um, I don't know if he's going to be winning any defensive player of the year awards, but he, you know, his, his spatial awareness improved. He's super athletic, great rebounder, good hands. Uh, I can see it. And, and I mean, then we talk about just like their ability to kind of, um, be compatible together and, uh, kind of lift each other up on the offensive end. It's like, that's just really obvious in the pick and roll game and pick and pop game. So I think it's legit. I know, I know you love the Suns, well, though, so I'm just kind of like I'm giving gonna, it to you right now. I'm going to hit the upgrade button, and I'm just going to say Jamal Murray <laughs> and Nikola Jokic. I mean, look, okay, like, so maybe the defense part isn't fully covered, but I think on the offensive one-two uh, tandem and how they do it and how they kind of can interchange with their skills and shooting and passing and movement and all that stuff, um, I, I think I'm going to go with those guys. Um, you know, in terms of you know other possible candidates here. I think that Giannis and Chris Middleton are actually kind of an underrated duo, um, both offensively and defensively in terms of Hmm. exactly what they can do. Now, are the rest of the pieces around them, you know, perfectly aligned so that their partnership uh, winds up looking as good as it can? Maybe not. Um, but I guess what we're all really more interested in here, Michael, is the parasitic relationships. Like who are the, who are the star duos that are like pulling each other down mm-hmm. or ripping each other apart? We've got nominations for Kyrie and Kevin Durant. We've got nominations of, of uh, uh, Harden and Westbrook. Who else would you add to the list? Well, I mean, like the Michael Jordan of this exercise is Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, wow. right? Like that's, <laughs> come on. That's like, it's so obvious. Uh, those two just, in my opinion... It's never going to work out. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, it's like we're like a week into the offseason and we're just crapping on the Sixers. But, I mean, the question was posed. Um, I just don't think that these guys uh, really benefit one another uh, at all. Um, I've got a hot take. Per- I'm with you on that one. I'm not going to disagree. I think it's it's self-evident. And it is the Michael Jordan of this example. Yeah. How, <laughs> how about Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo oh. Russell? Is D'Angelo Russell sort of in theory what Carl Anthony Towns have always wanted, a friend to play with, an offensive scorer on the perimeter, and yet like... 30th defense in the league for the next five years. Worst possible defense, not actually that great of a scorer, not a great playmaker, pounds the ball a lot, doesn't play with great pace, um, and winds up, you know, kind of getting everybody's hopes up and then letting them down. That's what I'm worried about with that pairing. And I do feel like it could take Towns a while to realize it. Like, I do think it kind of fits with the nature of this exercise where he might not even realize that it's happening, but it's happening. Do you think it'll take him a while to realize it? Or at, like by the trade deadline this year, he's kind of, well, it's sunk into it, him. It's tough, it's man. It's not working out. No, it, it's the buddy ball stuff is the hardest thing, right? And that's the term I came up with when Kevin decided he wanted to play with Kyrie in Brooklyn is they just mm-hmm. want to play with friends. Guys will give their friends so much more leeway than they would give any other player. If Chris Paul, actually, let's just put it this way. If Russell Westbrook went out this season wearing a Chris Paul suit and he, and he did the exact same thing that he did on the court, James Harden would never have any patience for it, right? I mean, 
throwing the ball out of bounds in, in crucial late game moments, bricking shot after shot after shot that are being given to you in the playoffs. Um, you know, everything else that we could say about Russell Westbrook's playoff performance are just obviously damaging. Harden comes out of that series and just says, hey, we're one piece away. None of us have any idea what piece he's talking about. It's just there's no possible piece that puts him on that level when you're dealing with a player like Westbrook uh, in those moments. If Chris Paul had performed the exact same way and he played way, way better in the previous playoffs and Harden's initial reaction was, you got to get this guy out of here. So it's it's the damaging aspects of buddy ball. You know, it really is. These guys just give uh, so much more uh, you know, leniency to their buddies when they're playing with them, and they, they are they're blinded by their friendship, and they they can't see the um mm. the success. And I worry that's what's going to happen with Carl Towns because the bottom line is he hasn't really had a great friend there in Minnesota for years, right? Um, in terms of somebody on his timeline, it didn't seem like the warmest relationship between him and Wiggins. Obviously, him and Jimmy went a little bit sideways, and there was the whole Tibbs era. And when he first came in, KG was his mentor. So that's not really like a buddy-buddy relationship. Like he's been waiting for a friend for an awful long time. And you can understand it, right? I mean, it's it's pretty cold up there in the winters. You'd like to have some friends you could, uh, you could uh, you know, go to war with. But I don't think it's going to play out like he expects. And I do think he's going to want to talk himself into it for a while. And it, it could get uh, a little bit dark. Well, on that depressing note, Michael, I think we should end it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we have a, a, t- a track record of doing that here recently on the show. It's ending on down notes, but oh, what can we say? Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. Guys, email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We have a bunch of awesome questions uh, that were much along the lines of the great symbiosis questions we got from uh, people today. We'll be uh, rolling those over until later this week when we'll double back with another episode. And just to be clear, guys, programming alert, we will continue forward during the off season with uh, two episodes a week. We got a few questions about that over the weekend. Have no fear. Michael and I will be here. All right, Michael. Until later this week, I'll talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.